Book Stew viewers. Today I have an author who's visiting us from New Jersey, and you're not going to believe this, but she came all the way up here for the show, um, but she used as an excuse that she hadn't been to Gloucester, or Gloucester, as I explained to her, we pronounce it. And so uh, she took a trip up, got to spend yesterday in Gloucester, and it was a perfect spring day, and now is here with us today. And so I'd like to introduce you to Pamela Ryder. Hi. Pamela, welcome. Thank you so much. And Pamela's book was sent to me by a, a publicist and champion of small presses. His name is John Madeira. And I guess we uh, connected on Facebook, and he was talking to me about his authors. And he did send me two books to look at, and Pamela's book just kind of hit me in exactly the right place. And so I was able to convince her to come up for an interview, so here she is. And Pamela's written three books. This book is called Paradise Field, a Novel in Stories. So the, the form of novel in stories I had never, was not familiar with until Olive Kittredge by Elizabeth oh, Stroud. Oh, and that is so wonderful. Isn't that amazing? But you, oh. you have done, so your, does your first book, was, was that published before Oliver Kittredge? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, a long So did you invent a novel in stories? Well, you see, I don't think I'm, at, at least up till now, I have not been capable of writing a novel. You know, uh, I, I think of what I can get away with <laughs> I can't remember who it was. It might have been Gordon Lish who said, uh, told me that the v reason that the Venus de Milo doesn't have arms is because he couldn't do good arms. <laughs> I, I think this is so that true. That kind of makes sense. It does. Right? And so I, I, I don't think I uh, had the wherewithal to put together a novel, but I can do things in spurts. So. I wrote the first story and then the second story, and I said, <clears throat> maybe somebody will buy it if the word novel is in the title. Ah, so, marketing strategy. Yeah, big marketing strategy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, but it's a good, it's a good uh, way for me to write. I, I like the short story. Okay, so Gordon Lish, in case um, you're not familiar with him, viewers, first of all, he, uh, he blurbed uh, Paradise Field beautifully. He wrote oh, a he recommendation wrote such a that, wonderful thing that for me. would uh, that would another thing is of course when I got the book, you know, you always look at the cover. I like the cover. I thought it was interesting, and then I turned it over, and I had heard of Gordon Lish mostly by the fact that he was the edit is is or was the editor for a lot of really great writers: Don DeLillo, Raymond Carver, Richard Ford, who I love, Reynolds Price. Barry Hanna, all of whom I've read something of, and um, aren't the easiest authors. You know, it's not like editing like um, Nora Roberts or something. I mean, you know, these are. I think these are wor these are authors who deal with or aren't easy reads. Let's say always rewarding reads, but not easy reads. So there, you've got this great endorsement by Gordon Lish. So can you tell us a little bit about how your friendship developed, your well, working relationship? Well, I had heard he made writers. This was back in the late 80s, and he was teaching right in New York City in a, uh, an apartment once a week. Uh, a class started at 6 in the evening. I was working at Bellevue Hospital at the time. I was supposed to be there till 10, so uh, this was once a week, and uh, I 
called him up. I said, hello, um, I hear you're teaching a writing course. He said, well, did you hear anything about this course? I said, well, yeah. He said, what did you hear? I said, well, I heard it's like a, a master class in writing. He goes, no, it's none of that. It's not like that anything at all. You're not going to like it. And I, I said, well, let me, <laughs> I, I'd really like to attend Mr. Lish. So I did. And uh, I was working at Bellevue, and I had to get across town to this class. So I would just tell whoever I was working with in the ER, I'm going to x-ray. And then I'd go over to the class. And oh, I hope nobody died on nobody to make you missed a writer, me. right? I stayed there. <laughs> and this class, I'm sure people have heard about this class. Uh, you sat there. Um, you didn't speak. It was in an apartment. People sat on the floor or chairs. He sat in the front of the class, in the front of the apartment, and uh, he talked. Uh, he just talked. He talked about lunch with Truman Capote and um, uh, his friend Franklin Trickia and uh, how writers uh, become famous and can't write any. He just talked about nothing. I was waiting for the class to start. <laughs> and, and then he talked about poetics and I didn't even know, I didn't even know what this guy was talking about. And then at about 10 o'clock, he said, does anybody have anything they'd like to read? And people, you see this whole thing about these workshops, and I agree with them, where you read something in the class comments, who wants these other people who are learning to comment? Mm, so you don't like the idea of writer's groups then? No. And oh, I have to agree with so he you would then stand you would then read your first sentence and it was it was brutal. It was brutal. I remember the first time I read a sentence, he said, Ryder, go ahead, get up and show us your Now this would not in other words, bear yourself to us. If it's not life and death and it's not from your guts. I really don't want to hear it. And you read your sentence, and he said, sit the down. And so that was how that went. Did he ever tell anyone to keep going? Sometimes. But a lot of people left. You paid big money for this class, and people just left. But I knew there was something there because of these writers, you so know? What, so how long did you take the class for? I stayed that year. I think it was 20 classes. Shot me down every time. Was he still editing, doing editing then yes. at the time and teaching? Yes, he was running the Quarterly, a wonderful literary magazine. So I stayed that year. I think it was the second year I started to understand what he meant about reading something that's close to your heart. And um, I had visited the Grand Canyon with my um, now ex-husband, and it was a very emotional, wonderful experience for me. So I figured, that's close to my heart. Eileen, let me write about that. So this is year two. Week after week, I'd try my sentence, and he'd tell me to sit the F down. Okay. And then I finally, after about midway into the second year, he said, anybody want to read? 
I mean, it's hard to do this. I would say, in it's front of, if, forgetting everyone else in the class, just in front of him. Yeah, everybody's there. And most people there aren't even raising their hands anymore. They're just paying and just sitting there. I don't know, but you know, so I read my sentence. Oh, no, he said, okay, Ryder. And I remember what he said. He said, here comes Ryder again, flogging us with dreg about the Southwest. Go ahead. I read the sentence. And he said, read it again. And he let me finish the story. Yeah. The whole story? How the long whole story. was the story? It's a pretty long story. Wow. Yeah. And it was very emotional, but I think I understood, I came to understand by writing that story how to do it. So what's your background as far as wanting to be a writer? And so you were working in in an e at, in the ER I'm, at Bellevue, which must have been pretty intense. It in is. I'm itself. still there. I'm still really? there. Really? Oh, yeah. I'm still working there. Uh, and uh, Oh, and then, so the class would end at about 1 a.m. No one went to the bathroom. No one said a word. You couldn't ask a question. Uh, Really, I mean, you could, but it really wasn't welcomed. So, so what brought you to well, that's what brought you to Bellevue, and what brought you to even knowing anything about Gordon Lish writing? Oh, um, I had met a doctor there who was uh, writing, and um, he read a story to me, and I said, "Well, give me that story; I can work on that." And I fixed, I edited it a little bit for him. I always liked to write. I had been pretty much told I was a failure as a writer by anyone in my life, so I stopped. Aww. You know how women get intimidated by yeah, things in the sure. old days. Yeah. So, uh, And then I read this doctor's story, and I thought, I can do this. And he told me about the class, ah. and, and I had never heard of Gordon Lish. And so you, I'm amazed that you went back after the first time. I he think made writers, and that's what I wanted to do. Okay, so even though you, it was certainly painful at the beginning anyway. So do you- Oh, still, still is. Still? Well, do you, st he's still alive, Yes, right? he is. Does, do you still go to that class? No, no, he doesn't teach that class anymore. He hasn't in many years, but um, we speak on the phone. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. So was he like, was he brutal in person too? No, well, you know, no, no, a pussycat. Really? An absolute, He's mellowed over the years, but he's an absolute sweet, wonderful man. So, I mean, and so after, how soon after you stopped taking the class did you put together your books of stories? Because you've got three. So when was the first one published? Well, then I went on to write some stories, and I wrote a, uh, I wrote a story about, uh, my father's a pilot, which is, uh, was in that book. He was a B-17 pilot. He always hated Charles Lindbergh, and uh, who was quite a the aviator, of course. And um, one day, my mailman, whose name was Richie Curving, he'd come to the door, and I'd say some stupid thing. Here comes Richie Curving this way and that way. <laughs> and ex-husband number three said to him when he delivered the mail, not so fast American flyboy, which I thought was kind of a funny thing to yeah. say, like from the movies. And we got to chatting and the, Richie Curvin told me 
the flyboy comment brought him to talk to me about that an uncle of his had been a gardener on the Lindbergh estate in New Jersey, which was maybe 10 miles from me. Oh, what a, what a I said, serendipitous really? connection. I said, tell me about that. Well, um, you know, the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, right. and he flew the Atlantic, et cetera. So when they found the baby's body uh, in Hopewell, New Jersey, I think it was, it was pretty decayed. And they did have the jaw of the baby, and they asked the gardener if he would return to the police the teething ring that they had given him years before. The baby, I think, was 24 months. It wasn't really a little baby to compare those teeth marks. How, wait, so the Lindberghs just gave him the teething ring? Or yes, as a gardener, as a present. That's weird in and A little itself. weird, but then when the kid was dead, yeah. they needed it back to check. Strange thing. The cops did everything wrong in that. But anyway, so I thought that was so interesting. You know, and again, Gordon Lish said, You'll know when there's something you want to write about. It will be, it will take your attention for a minute. Don't turn from it. Ah, oh, that's great advice. Don't turn from it. it. It'll be, don't write for the audience. Write for something that knocks you out. And I was so interested in those teeth marks that I wrote the first Lindbergh story, and then I wrote a book. So that first book was called Correction of Drift, which is an, an aviation term, and it's about that kidnapping. So there's nothing about your father in that first book at all? Because this book is all about nothing your about father. Him. No. Was he in the back of your head, though? I mean, because... No, uh, not really. Uh, he read the book, though, my father did, and his comment was, um, Lindbergh never wore a hat. That's all he said to me, which I thought was kind well, of... Well, that sounds like something <laughs> yeah. that the father yeah. in the book he would wear definitely a hat. say. I did speak to him quite often about aviation terms, etc., and I think he liked the book. He didn't say much about it, but... So that was the first book. Then the second book was a collection of just random stories that I'd written essentially uh, during the Gordon Lish uh, classes. And okay. Then and then this one. Now, this one is um, both an exploring and a, a tribute to your father, who from this book is, I mean, he's hard to describe. He's, I mean, I guess everybody who's had a dad would recognize some of him in it uh, as he got older. And you only, you only know him briefly when he's not older and infirm and right, kind of on right. his way down. Right. But, um, I almost think like he's the universal disapproving dad who all you want to do is um, is earn his appreciation. He makes it difficult. It's complicated and mixed up with love. Um, but I thought, uh, well, instead of thinking, I'm going to ask you if you wouldn't mind reading two brief passages that really <sighs> struck me. Now, I know you haven't read them in a while, and when I talked to you about do doing the reading, you weren't sure you would make it through it, but um, I, I hope you'll try. So I will try. So there's two separate passages. Um, start with the buzzing section? Mm -hmm. Okay.
The father thought he felt a buzzing in his chest. Palpitations, the daughter asked. Not exactly, the father said, more like a run of thumps, more like the hop skip just before the jump. Rhythm strips were deciphered. There were abnormal pauses. There were blips and bleeps out of sync. Dot, dot, dash, the father said. All these years, I still remember. Ask me to tap out something besides SOS. Pills were prescribed to prevent clots, promote pumping, open, open arteries, assist valves, enhance flow, lower the pressure, increase perfusion. Quite an assortment, the father said. How does each pill know where to go? I remember he did That's ask, my favorite, he did ask me that one time. One of my time. favorite lines. The daughter arranged containers and sorted capsules and tablets into plastic boxes with compartments meant to improve compliance. One pill at breakfast, two at dinner, one tab on odd days and one on even. The daughter made labels and wrote out instructions with big black markers and big black print. She shook a bottle that rattled too full. What about these, she said, are these the one you're taking? Sure, the father said. Which are those? The little white ones? Sure, he said. But are you remembering which and when, the daughter asked. Hell, the father says, what do you take me for? Memory deficits were suggested. The daughter, however, suspected a case of simple devil-may-care. Flight patterns, fuel expenditure formulas, it was all up here, he said, as he tapped his head, and they had him rewired, retested, rescanned. Carotid flow was sounded for obstruction. Gray matter was imaged for shrinkage. See, the father said when the final report came in. Mentation remains undiminished. Capacity for problem solving unimpaired. Faculties entirely intact. I'm in pretty good shape for the shape I'm in, the father said. <laughs> which, I, which I loved. So I'm going to ask you to read one more little part. But I just... have to tell you one little thing in there. Okay. My father came to my house one day. He was wearing a dark shirt with a little pocket in it. I said, what's that little stain there? He said, oh, uh, my heart pills. They went through the wash. I said, <laughs> I said, yeah. He said, well, I'm out now. That's all I had. And I said, Daddy. He went, oh, it's all right. Oh, he did not. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> there's, there's one. Um, so the book is in chapters, and it, it goes back and forth in time. But there was the one, one of the ones that stood out to me the most was the visit to France. Oh, yes. Did that really happen? Well, you know, I left it as a visit to France because it seems that way. But it was really a resort in New Jersey. Oh, it was so French, though. My father uh, was uh, cheating on my mother for many, many years and with a French woman who introduced him to a resort where only French people went in the summer. I know. Wait, is this place still exist? No, no. Uh, it sounds like, like uh, an amusement park was, for Francophones. It was all French people. In fact, um, uh, George and I went down there about three years ago to see if the place was still there, and it was. It was, it was up for sale, it was boarded up, there were two French places right very close together. And uh, so we spent our summers there. And the story is pretty accurate. I was very young at the time, but uh, he was having an affair with this French woman and did for many years after. But he brought your mother 
we were there too. <laughs> oh, wow. He was uh, quite the fly boy, I guess. Uh, yep, quite. Okay, so will you read Sh the next one too? This was um, a part that I just thought was was complete in itself. It was just a, a little passage that I like oh, to sure. starts from the daughter. Oh, and, and does it starts from the daughter? Yep. And how far do you want me to just go? Just to the next page, because oh, there's only one line sure. on the next page. <clears throat> oh, oh, okay, so this is, this is purchase of the coffin. Right. Right. This was pretty much as it occurred, too. The daughter stands beside the box. Which would, she wonders, then remembers. Birch, yes, that was it, all right, she had said to the purveyor of boxes. This one, the birch, yes. She wonders if there is space enough at the shoulders. She wonders if outside the clouds are still low and tightly layered. She wonders if the pillow in the box had been fluffed enough to give the father's head the right tilt not too extended at the neck, and his chin and jaw not too tucked. And if someone had tried to put his dentures in his mouth when his jaw was stiff, or if they had been slipped in without force or mess or fuss when his mouth had gone slack, and if someone had wiped the spit from his face the way she would have wiped it, and if someone had put his hands in place with the sleeve and cuff of the jacket pulled down to the wrist, she wonders if the room where he had been kept was a room kept cold as the day might be when snow was coming, and if, outside, the clouds coming in are cirrus or cumulonimbus, or if it has gotten colder, or if there is much wind. She wonders if the jacket still fits and then thinks it does. It must. There must have been the loss of weight. She wonders if there are other kinds of cold, climes unknown, if there are weathers in the earth. She places her hands along the lid to get a grip, to get it open, to see if the jacket has been properly zipped. I love that line, she wonders if there are weathers in the earth. I guess, you know, I like to, I play around, I write short stories, I send emails, I post on Facebook. But a sentence like that is way, be, way beyond my grasp. It's just like some, What do you mean? It's, it's a beautifully complete sentence in itself, and it's not anything I would ever think of anyone thinking or saying, but it's so, it's so, just so beautiful and perfect. Yeah, sometimes these sentences come. But you know, I, I'm always editing. I'm editing all the time. You know, I'm so then at what point do you say, okay, I got to let it go. I'm not going to edit anymore. There is no point. So I you could, would re-edit the whole thing if you could. I, I'm sure I'd make, <laughs> I'd make changes Some changes. Here and there. Like uh, when we were first met, you mentioned that you thought I'd be a little stouter. And I thought, oh, and you said that was because one of the stories mentions uh, the big woman in her bed and she doesn't, she's so hot all the time. And in that story, we go on to the daughter and the daughter's boyfriend and the dog, and I thought, oh, shoot, I didn't write that clearly enough. Ah. I got to go fix that. Ah, but so, of I, course, I, so I picked up on something yes, that you maybe did. you would have edited I, out. Yeah, I would, I would make it stronger. So um, speaking of, of the book itself, and the first, the first whole section is on how to 
perform a Jewish burial in your backyard by digging the hole oh, yes. if this is something that you are going to do. And it's very, very detailed as far as digging the shroud, the, the dimensions of the grave. Did well, you, let me ask you, did you like that story? Uh, I loved it because of the way it was written. I didn't love the topic because, of course, I thought it was kind of creepy. And I lost my father three years ago. And again, well, I, I, that's nothing back, that ever would have occurred to me, even though I'm Jewish, to bury him in the backyard. Or, I mean, you're just, Jewish? Yes. Oh, yes. A McDougal. <laughs> my husband. I love this. Well, <laughs> you know, the thing is, I now look, and I think that maybe this should have been the final story. I like the final story where the father is speaking from the grave as it goes down. Yeah. Um, but I, I have thought to put this might have been better at the end. But um, that, that's interesting. Should I tell you a little bit about oh, that story? Oh, absolutely. Please do. So um, I was in the backyard burying my cat. Um, let's see. Which cat was that? I think it was Ponzi. My cat, Ponce de Leon. Okay, so hopefully it would have been a lot smaller hole for Right, Ponce. I was digging a very small hole. I, you know, Eileen, I love stones. We were just walking on the beach in Gloucester. How's that? Yeah, it's perfect. And um, I picked up a large boulder, a big stone on the, on the beach. I even had George take a picture of me with the stone. They Which really, I know you're going to, George will send us so I can put we'll it send into you that the episode. Because uh, they always speak to me, the stones. So um, I noticed I had buried a number of animals in the backyard, and I found that it was very interesting. The same thing always happens when you dig. You dig for a way, there's roots, things must be removed. And uh, I remember that um, my. George and my, our dog was watching this, and I was had to get the box, the little shoebox right, and I had to get things placed properly. And she came and she said, "Let me just take the dog, and because um, you guys are busy, I'll watch the doggy, and I'll be back in an hour." So Wait, she, who's she? A, a friend. Okay. Who dog watches? And she said she came back an hour later, and I'm still getting this properly. And again, Gordon Lish, I mean, what is this about me digging a hole about a body of a child with a, a rotting corpse and teeth marks and rocks? And I thought, you know, I was digging a grave for my father. Oh my goodness. That's... And so the story went that way. Well, the story did go that way, and I kind of agree with you that maybe I would move it to the end, but um, it was still, I mean, if I hadn't read that story first, I might not have said, oh, I'd like to talk to this author, because maybe the whatever you put first wouldn't have attracted me like that did, because it was such a, it was kind of a shock to the system. But there's some good laughs in that oh, story. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But uh, now I'm afraid our good laughs are over okay. because our time is up, which okay. is terrible. We could go well, double. Thank you so much. But um, uh, viewers, I really want to recommend this to you. It's called Paradise Field, and the author is Pamela Ryder. And I'm sure it's available everywhere, libraries, bookstores. 
Um, it's just a, a great collection, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Thank you so much for having me. I want to thank you so much for coming all the way up from New Jersey. It was just My an pleasure. honor. So Bookstew viewers, um, I hope you'll get a hold of Pamela's books. She's got three. And uh, thanks for joining us today. Have a good night. Thank you.